Welcome to Conscious Collaboration, the premier show for authentic discussions with growth-oriented leaders. Hi and welcome. My name is Yael Sibi, and I am very excited to have you join us for the Conscious Collaboration podcast today. Um, and I am delighted to welcome our guest, Andrew Nurkin. So Andrew Nurkin is the Deputy Director for Enrichment and Civic Engagement at the Free Library of Philadelphia. He's also a friend and colleague and uh, former client of mine. And I've invited Andrew on this show because as I said to him, I honestly feel like he's one of a handful of leaders that to me really embodies sort of this idea of conscious collaboration. He doesn't, I think, just get it. He lives it. At least that's what I've seen in person. And I wanted to have a conversation with him about that. So welcome, Andrew. Thanks, Yael. It's great to be with you. So let's see. Andrew, maybe as we get started, tell us a little bit about what it means to be deputy director, because that's such a like fancy, cool title. <laughs> but I know <laughs> you do a lot of neat things. Can you tell us about kind of your, your current role right now? Sure. It's a fancy title for a job that I really feel like I lucked into and I'm very happy to have. So essentially, and it's a new role at the Free Library. The Free Library is Philadelphia's public library system. We have 54 branches across the city of Philadelphia. No Philadelphian lives more than a mile from a library. And increasingly, as the role of libraries in our society changes from repositories of stuff to civic and community centers where people access all different kinds of information, services, and enriching programs, the Free Library really envisioned a position that would help put some strategy and thinking and consistency around the quality of our adult programming. So that's my job. I essentially um, the head program officer for the Free Library. I think about how to do cultural enrichment and civic engagement and community-driven work that's responsive and embedded and attuned to the interest and needs of the one and a half million people who live in the city of Philadelphia on a daily basis. Excellent. I feel like we could just have a whole podcast, of course, about just the substance of your work. Oh, yeah. I, you'd have to shut me up because I could talk about it all day. <laughs> so please know that that'll be a different conversation. This one is more meta. This one really sparked from us working together for several years when you had your former position as the executive director of Princeton Alumni Corps. And what I want to share with people is that I just loved watching Andrew in action as a leader. I loved watching you communicate and relate to people. And so as we have started trying to think about and write about this idea of conscious collaboration, I wanted to see what, what you think. Let's start out with our working definition. And this is still iterating. We're still kind of figuring this out as we go. But our working definition right now, Andrew, of conscious collaboration is that it's both an attitude and a set of practices in working with others and leading others that recognizes that everything we do at work, every interaction we have can be an opportunity for our professional growth as well as our psychological or emotional growth as human beings. And every interaction is also a chance to help the workplace be a more health, healthy place to be or not. So I want to just stop and say, what do you think of that definition? Does that make sense to you? What, if anything, am I missing? I love your reactions. Yeah, I think it makes sense in a lot of ways. 
as you probably know, I don't really believe that we need to have or even ought to have a work self and a non-work self. I believe in bringing the full self to to kind of everything that we do and living that level of integrated life to the extent that's possible. And I should say, in terms of this definition, I, I probably have two maybe qualifications that I'll get to in just a second. But for the most part, I think it does make sense. Um, that's kind of how we experience life. And, you know, we spend a lot of our lives at work if we have kind of regular full-time, our typical full-time jobs. Um, and even if we don't, we spend a lot of time thinking about work in this culture and society. So um, I, think it, I think it does make sense to integrate the two and see the one as potentially informative or, or driving growth in the other. I happen to be someone who's very oriented towards purpose and meaning in my professional life. And so for me, it also just makes a lot of sense because um, how I think about showing up in my personal life and how I think about showing up for my family and friends and how I think about showing up for work are all related. Um, I just, I'm not the kind of person that can divorce those two. There are some people who can do that, um, but it's not built into my fiber. And so for me, the, the definition that you've got kind of makes sense. Um, I guess the one thing I would add, and then maybe two qualifications, for me, a lot of the joy of conscious collaboration is really oriented towards the collaborators, towards those relationships that we have and making those relationships non-functional uh, or, or sort of by which I mean, not purely about their function, but also about the interpersonal um, joy of getting to work with people. Uh, I, had some, I was having a conversation recently with someone around partnership and what makes a good partnership at work, sort of interinstitutionally. And we kind of decided that partnerships just have to arise from a relationship. You can't reach out to somebody, and I'm in a city where there are hundreds, if not thousands of cultural organizations that I could work with to do a variety of interesting projects. And sometimes I can cold call them or they can cold call me. But the best partnerships come from just, we know each other and we know what it's like to work with each other and we get a sense of shared value and mission. And so I think that's something that's really important to this definition. A lot of conscious collaboration is around the relationships that we build and derive joy and meaning from in our professional lives. I would have maybe two concerns about this definition. I, concern's not exactly the right word. But one is that it does seem to put a lot of burden on every interaction. And my experience of growth is that you often, I often don't see it when it's happening. I only see it in retrospect. So six months or a year later, I'll look back on an experience and say, wow, now I think about that moment with a very different perspective and potentially more maturity than I did when I was going through it. And if at the time I had thought, oh, well, this is growth, this is growth, this is growth, I might have, that introspection might have actually stymied some of the learning that I took away. And so I'm always mindful that introspection and, and consciousness is important an important attitude in the minute-to-minute -minute experience of our lives can occasionally be burdensome or overwhelming. And sometimes we just have to flow down the river um, and see where we go. Uh, the other thing I just want to point out is that I do think there are some kinds of labor for whom this definition may not make any sense at all. Um, I mean, there are some, many of my colleagues have roles at the Free Library where you know, I don't think this would really translate for them, just given the nature of their job, the nature of how they think about work in their lives. And um, it wouldn't be for me to say that they ought to think about it this way. So, I, you know, I do want to hold space for there are there is there is labor that um, is not uh, you know, for whom this a different kind of 
conscious collaboration would need to arise. Yeah. Thank you for raising both of those points. I feel like, again, we could just follow either of those and deepen them. So I, 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 I like, you know, having the questions as much as uh, playing with answers here. And I think you're right on the second point. You know, we, I think in a way it's a privilege to even have a conversation about conscious collaboration and what it means. I think it sits on that top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs in terms of self-actualizing, you know, personally and professionally. And I think it's a, it's a privilege to focus on self-actualization versus all the other needs, the human needs that, that kind of precede it, at least if we use Maslow as a, as a model. So um, thank you. I want to come back to your first point because I, the the first sort of disclaimer or uh, concern you had because I think that that's sort of where we go next. So hard to maybe feel self conscious about being a conscious collaborator in every moment, maybe burdensome, but easier to see with retrospect, perhaps easier to understand what we learned. And I think that's that totally squares with my experience. Let's then look at what you have experienced. So I'd love for you to take a little jog down memory lane. So whether it's at the free library or in any other organization that you've worked in, and I know, I think all, if not most have been mission driven. So, you know, with some purpose driven uh, peeps around you, what are some examples of conscious collaboration that you have experienced? I'd love to just get a picture of this. And again, you probably didn't call it this at the time, but if we imagine that there were interactions that helped you grow as a person, either through leading or through collaborating or through seeing others lead or collaborate, can you give me some examples of what this may have looked like for you? Yeah, sure. So maybe I'll, I'll go back beyond and before the free library, because I've only been there for a little more than a year. And I, honestly, every day has been an experience of learning and transformation. And I'm still very much in the thick of that. Um, which is joyful, but, but also, you know, there might be more useful examples in my past. So I, I think back to when I, I started my career um, sort of early on at Princeton University, and I was working in the Center for Civic Engagement there. One of the projects that I kind of got tasked with, and it was really thrown my way because nobody else wanted it, was to work with a set of faculty who had been teaching algebra classes in state correctional facilities in New Jersey. And this was in the sort of mid-2000s. They were actually astrophysicists who were just going in and teaching basic algebra to folks who'd been incarcerated in uh, two facilities near, near Princeton's campus. And there was interest in kind of growing that program, providing administrative support to it, maybe building collaborations with others around the state that were doing similar work. And so I kind of jumped into it and started working with those faculty to build out a curriculum uh, started working with our accrediting institution, which at that time was not Princeton, but a local community college that was actually offering credit to the students who were um, incarcerated. Uh, and then other higher ed institutions around the state that were doing similar work in prisons near their campuses. And at the, at the time, it just seemed like this is a really daunting project to try and think about building an educational system, post-secondary educational system in 13 state correctional facilities across New Jersey. There had been a long history before the 1994 crime bill of higher ed in prisons. Um, and then after that bill, federal funding was pulled. And overnight, it went from 300 programs to seven 
Um, so we were really doing on a volunteer and basis something that previously the, the federal government had felt an obligation to do. And suffice it to say that the level of partnership was pretty complicated, working with higher ed institutions from Princeton to Rutgers to community colleges and other small liberal arts colleges in the state, the State Department of Corrections, which has its own culture, individual correctional officers and prison administrators, students who had been incarcerated sometimes for as long as 30 years, and faculty and volunteers and grad students from Princeton. And that's a really wide and diverse range of partners. Pulling all of them together took a very long time. Ultimately, we were able to build a statewide program that was then picked up and funded by the Ford Foundation is still going strong today and I think has been a national model of success for how to do collaborative social driven, you know, mission driven work in correctional facilities. When I think back about that about that time, I really had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I I literally this my my boss at the time called and said, I need somebody to work on this project. Would you do it? And I said, sure, I know nothing about mass incarceration. I had never been inside a prison before. I did not have a lot of experience building curriculum or applying for multi-million dollar grants. But through the process of about two and a half years, learned what I needed to know through self-study and asking people who I was working with. Spent a lot of time facilitating very complicated, emotionally fraught meetings as people really put their needs and aspirations out on the table. And occasionally those were contradictory and mutually exclusive, and negotiating something that I think was uh, an important contribution to the landscape of, of the reform of the criminal justice system. So, you know, I think that that maybe is an ex- the clearest example in my mind of doing a collaborative project that at the time seemed overwhelming and exasperating and difficult, and in retrospect, was one of the most personally and professionally transformative experiences that I've had. Mm. Thank you. So I wonder if we could kind of even zoom in further, either with that example or another, Andrew, because you don't take a lot of credit for sort of how it played out. And I know you and that's not like how how you roll. But I'm imagining you may have played a part, right, in these people coming together and facilitating the emotionally fraught meetings. And is it fair to say that we both agree to an extent, if if not largely, that personal and professional growth you know, are deeply intertwined, if not two sides of the same coin. Is that, is that like a fair, I don't know, thing to start? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think intertwined is a fair place to start. Okay. So if we look again, either at that example or another, can you talk to me about how you've grown as a person, as you've grown as a leader? Like how, how have these things been intertwined for you personally? Yeah. I mean, going back to that example and those you know, maybe the part that I played, I did do a lot of facilitation, a lot of bringing people together. You know, you think you're going to do this project that seems very straightforward. We're going to build a core structure. We're going to ensure accreditation. We're going to make education accessible to people who've been disenfranchised from it. We're going to put together a team of faculty who can teach. But very quickly, it became clear that the mission of the different educational institutions involved were very different. How they thought about learning what learning is, what spaces learning can take place in, who facilitates learning. Basic questions of pedagogy and educational mission, separate and apart from all of the logistical challenges of doing work inside of a correctional facility, which um, is, is really complicated and fraught. 
and the particular pedagogical and curricular challenges of working with people who are incarcerated and have potentially been historically alienated from formal education. Those are emotionally attached questions because we were working with people who spent their whole career thinking about education and what education is and asking everybody to make some accommodations or make some give or adjustment in those definitions. Um, and so I think my role was really to invite people into a space where they could challenge some deeply held beliefs that they had about themselves and their work, where they could put aside some interpersonal differences and personality conflicts. And I think some of those were associated with class and race and gender that we had to really think through and work through those in a really honest way. For me, the personal growth there came from being able to arrive at those meetings intact enough to know that I could check my own emotional responses. I could keep my stuff outside of the room because my job was to facilitate. Everybody else needed to be able to be messy and argumentative and emotionally engaged. I needed to have a little bit of critical distance in order to make that meeting proceed in a way towards a goal. And you know, that was a really, that was potentially a challenge for me early on. And I think that has allowed me through practice to exert some of that distance in other parts of my life as well, my life as well, where I can, you know, not always be invested in a way that's going to be counterproductive, can, can arrive at some distance that allows conversations to flow where they need to, because it's not always about me. In fact, it's very rarely about me. Uh, and I think that was an important uh, learning. You know, I was very young and trying to prove myself and trying to accomplish something big. Um, and pretty quickly, I learned that I needed to get that out of the room because if this was actually going to happen, it had to have nothing to do with me and my ego. Uh, and it needed to be focused on the students and their learning. Uh, and so I think that's kind of the, maybe one of the areas of personal growth that, that was really important about that experience. Nice. Thank you. And I think you've pointed to this. Is it fair to say that? That being able to sort of check in with yourself and not get reactive has personal as well as professional benefits to it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a constant question of asking, wait, why am I having this response right now? Am I being triggered in some way by something someone has said? Is that I need to listen to that and respond to that and know myself, but also is that response helpful in this context? And having a little bit of higher consciousness around kind of your own emotional responses before reacting in a collaborative situation is, is really important. Um, and I think that's just been helpful throughout my life. Beautiful. You know, one of the semantic differences I make, and I'm, I'm not sure if somebody who studies words would agree with me or not, but this is what I use in my coaching sometimes, is the difference between reacting and responding. Because I think I think of reacting as that sort of instantaneous thing that happens sort of when the doctor hits your knee with that tool and you just boom have a knee jerk literally reaction you react but there's no pause and there's no discernment of what's going on with me what's the difference between me and what's happening out there and what choice do I want to potentially make to respond in a way that's aligned with my purpose here i think that's right i mean the react it contains, it's, you know, the word, the notion of action, um, of movement. 
And sometimes that's very helpful in an emergent response when you really need to be able to, to move quickly. But often I find, especially in mission-driven work or, or more leadership-driven space, that the notion of thoughtful response is really helpful. And sometimes that response is not to act at all or not to say anything, but just to be silent or to defer and pass leadership to other people. I think that's actually more often than not the response that's most constructive. Great. Great. So speaking of leading others, maybe we'll go to our next piece because to me, where the antique sort of gets upped on all of this is when you're leading other people. So, you know, it it sounds like you had a facilitative role in, in the project you were just describing to me. And I've seen you lead teams. I've seen you, you know, have people reporting into you day after day. And I'm wondering if we could look at your experience with that and what it means and what you've learned or practiced about creating the conditions for collaboration, especially for a team that you lead that might, you know, people with different motivations and different skill levels and different experience levels. What what are your thoughts on this? Someone that I worked with at Princeton Alumni Corps said, you're the first person that's ever asked me how I wanted to be managed. And to me, that seems like such a natural question. Um, It's a question I've often wished people had asked me because I kind of know those conditions under which I respond best and produce my best work. And I think part of leadership is really trusting the people on your team to know themselves and to know how they work best and asking them, what would you like to accomplish together and how can I help you do that? So I, I do not have a kind of hierarchical management style. My thought is that my job as a, as a leader and a manager is really to bring people to their fullest, best work and, and to let them lead that process and I can fill in and support where needed. That's not to say that there aren't many, many moments in which my role is to keep people on task to make sure that we're producing deliverables that are oriented towards a larger mission, oftentimes in organizations that um, are as large and complex as the library, but even as small as, um, as Princeton Alumni Corps, where you and I worked together. People can get very focused on their individual tracks and jobs. And, and one of the roles of, as a leader is to keep people anchored and oriented towards the larger mission. So that's part of it too. I really like to make sure that people have the people on my team have projects that they care about, that you know, some portion of all of our work in, in this sector is going to be things we wouldn't get up in the morning and choose to do, but are necessary towards the larger goal. But I think a lot of our work needs to be and can be stuff that we find joyful and fulfilling. And if you don't have that, then work can be a really dispiriting and alienating kind of experience. And it is for many people, but to the extent that I can, my job as a manager is to make sure that we're proceeding in a way that people find real meaning and satisfaction and, and high use in the projects we undertake together. In that sense, I, I'm sort of making the inference that because, you know, finding meaning and purpose in work is so important to you, you apply that to also how you manage others and you want that for them as well. Yeah, I think that's right. I agree with that. I have had a few cases where, you know, folks that are on my team, I kind of make this pitch and they say, yeah, but that's nice. This project needs to get done in this way. And they don't have that same motivation or desire as I do. And in those cases, I back off and say, that's great. You know, if you see this project as something that you just want to tackle, it doesn't necessarily have to be the most meaningful experience of your life. It just needs to get done. They're more outcome driven and less mission driven. That is fine. 
um, and, and we construct a, a project flow that, that works for that style. And we could imagine, right, in their paradigm and being the way they are in the world, hitting the outcome might be what, you know, gives the meaning. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. All right. So just maybe an, another question or two as we, as we finish up. Andrew, I know you've been through some formal leadership training and you've had lots of on-the-job experience. Any thoughts with, like, how did you learn to be a leader? And, you know, I, I'm imagining you're still learning every day, but what are your thoughts on, on sort of formal versus informal training to be a leader and especially any, anything related to sort of this whole notion of personal and professional growth as connected to being a leader? It's a combination of three things. One is just dropping into the deep end of the pool and figuring it out. That has worked for me because I'm a person who likes to just figure out challenges and, um, and be self-sufficient. That's not everybody's best learning mode, but it, it happens to be mine. Um, but I think I've also benefited from a lot of wonderful mentors and guides along the way who shared their wisdom with me and who provided feedback, often very critical feedback, and said that you really could have done this better, and I, I value and appreciate that. Um, and then I have had a couple of formal leadership trainings, actually not, not as many as some, and those have been valuable too, but actually mostly in the ability to form relationships with other people who are going through the same levels of experience as me. And so, especially in the social or nonprofit sector, there can be few spaces for real, honest, transparent reflection on the challenges of being a leader and the challenges of trying to accomplish something uh, meaningful for our communities and or in, in partnership with communities. And those formal leadership moments have really been spaces of relationship for me rather than here's a toolkit to figure out how to fix any one problem and address any one challenge. Back to relationships, right? As sort of the ground from which collaboration happens. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's see, as we finish up, Andrew, I know you've already kind of spoken to this. So indulge me if there's, if there's something as, as we wrap up to consider, you know, I, I like the language moments of truth and maybe it's a big sort of term to use, but that I think in any given day or week or month in a leader's life um, and in any of our lives really professionally, there are these moments of truth where we realize, oh, this is what I'm about or, oh, this is what I'm not about and I'm learning something about myself. Could you give us one or two moments of truth that stand out for you maybe in you know the past couple of years in this theme of learning to be more conscious, learning in a way to mature psychologically and emotionally that just give us a sense of, of how you're growing as a person and, and as, a, as a leader. Sure. I think, you know, this is actually a very recent example, and I don't know if it's a single moment, but maybe a sort of evolution of understanding. Mm. I am of that generation where everybody got a participation trophy. Uh -huh. I had a whole shelf of participation trophies when I was a kid. And just know something about myself that um, I respond positively to affirmation in the workplace. And as I've gone through my career, that's been in some ways great and in some ways reliability because it can become a driver and it can distract from other motivations like mission. Uh, if you're always seeking kind of the good job, the pat on the back. So I've had to learn to check that a little bit. Um, I'm now in a context where I, I work for the city of Philadelphia. I'm a public servant. My colleagues are all public servants. I work in an institution that is incredibly diverse across all different kinds of vectors that has 
collaborative relationships and, and, and collegial relationships that are rich and varied in all kinds of ways. But it's not a culture of affirmation. I think we understand that we, we are public servants. We take that very seriously. We run one of the largest and most respected cultural and civic institutions in one of the country's most important cities. And we don't spend all day telling each other how great we are. And so, because we've got a lot to do, which isn't to say that we don't appreciate. I mean, it's certainly everybody appreciates and respects each other's work, but um, it's not a culture of participation trophies. And I think that's actually been a real learning for me because at some point I had to say, well, how will I know if I'm achieving the things that I've set out to achieve or that the institution has set out for me to do or that as a team we're trying to accomplish together? And it has really caused me to search deeper for kinds of indicators of success that are more truthful and more authentic than someone saying, good job. And I think that's been a real evolution in my thinking about how I go about my work and and what we're doing at the library. It's not about accolades and applause or recognition. It's about really transforming spaces and lives and moving an institution to a place of um, deeper embeddedness in the city's public life. So yeah, that's that's been a, a series of moments of truth for me over the past 12 mm-hmm. months. I love that. I may have mentioned in, in the correspondence we've had, I've been um, doing more reading on this sort of notion of adult development and how we mature as human beings, which is very connected to this sort of whole conversation. And one of the questions that I like to play with in terms of kind of where am I in this moment is being able to assess what are my lower motivations and what are my higher motivations right now? And lower motivations maybe has a little bit of a disparaging quality, but we all have them as human beings and a lower motivation can be, am I doing this right to be liked or to get attention or to get approval? There's more ego-driven stuff that we all know very intimately versus kind of what is this about and what are we trying to achieve here? And I think that that speaks in and circles right back to your your purpose-driven work. So I, I, I like that you're in a way kind of playing with this question of lower and higher motivations as as you were giving us a sense of, of these moments of truth. That's such an interesting way of thinking about it. And I think really helpful. I don't think that there's any real value in denying that all of us to some extent in our professional lives have ambition and ego invested in the work that we do. That's very natural. Um, it's very much part of our culture and how this country has set up our relationship to, to work. And so, you know, I don't think from a professional standpoint, it's helpful to deny that it exists. I do think it's helpful to keep it in check and to be mindful, as you said, of kind of when that is your being your gut driver and whether that that's distracting you from a kind of higher purpose or sense of accomplishment. I'm glad that resonates. Andrew, this has been so cool today because I've gotten to do two things at once. I've gotten to have a conversation with you, which I love. And I've also gotten to learn a little bit more about what we might mean when we talk about this concept of conscious collaboration. I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I hope our listeners have enjoyed this conversation as well. So stay tuned for more conversations with conscious leaders on conscious collaboration. 